This week, we're going to continue our series, Commissioned, which is a look at the final words of Jesus in the book of Matthew. Words that were spoken to his followers, but reverberate throughout the centuries, for, for they are for us today as well. We find this instruction of Jesus in Matthew 28, verses 18 to 20, where we read, Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven on earth has been given to me, therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you, and surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. We spent a few weeks looking at the authority of Jesus, how he is called us to go, and what it looks like to make disciples. And according to the commission, part of making disciples involves baptism. Go, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them. Why baptize? What's the significance of baptism? How do we see it as part of the making of disciples? I'm excited about having the opportunity to speak on baptism. We we don't do it all that often, but what a gift God has given us. What a blessing to us, this gift of baptism. As we spend time looking at what baptism is and why it's a part of discipleship, let us turn to our text this morning, which is found in Romans chapter 6. We'll be looking at verses 1 to 4. As we're working our way to that text, I think it's important to get a bit of an idea as to how our church views baptism, how the denomination that we belong to understands this gift of God. We believe that baptism is an act of God, that it's something that God does, and that it is a gift to us. We call it a means of grace, an avenue through which God pours out his grace to us. We'll be receiving grace through another one of those avenues later in the service when we celebrate the Lord's Supper together. And we believe that those are the two sacraments, baptism and the Lord's Supper, and as as they are means of grace which were instituted by Christ. They are means of grace, which were instituted by Christ. What does the word baptism mean? In our red book, The Explanation to Luther's Small Catechism, we have this definition of baptism. The English word baptism comes from a word in the Greek language, which means a cleansing by washing, immersion, and or a death. Well, that can be a little confusing on its own. What does death have to do with being washed by water, our text this morning does a pretty awesome job of bringing clarity to what takes place in baptism. Again, our text is Romans chapter 6, verses 1 to 4. If you are able, I encourage you to stand as we read the word of the Lord this morning. Romans chapter 6, 1 to 4. What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. We are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too, we too may live a new life. Thus ends the reading. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word, for your word is truth. God, I pray that you would speak through your word this morning, that you would perform the miracle that feeds our souls. We pray this in your name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. On October 31st, 2010, a post-apocalyptic horror show that would eventually become the most watched series in cable history premiered on AMC titled The Walking Dead. 
The premise is not incredibly original. A contagious disease created in a lab has spread throughout humanity, and those affected by it die and then become zombies, hence the title, The Walking Dead. The show follows a group of people who are trying to survive, trying to escape the virus. I mean, and it's well done. It's, it's well acted. I'm not a big fan of the whole horror genre myself, so I didn't make it very far when I tried to watch it. But it was, it was generally well received. The protagonists find themselves facing moral dilemmas and struggling to stay ahead of this virus. Now, we do not have the wildfire virus from The Walking Dead running rampant in our world today. We have to worry about people dying and then coming back to life as a zombie. No, we don't have that particular disease, but we do have something similar. According to the verses that Mike read for us from Ephesians chapter 2, we are dead in our trespasses and sins, dead, but walking around, living our lives, unaware of our condition. That's what sin has done to us. Sin is the sickness that lives in our bones, resides in our hearts, and is exposed in our thoughts and actions. Each of us, every human, is a sinner. We have all fallen short. We have all failed our God. He has called us to be perfect. He has asked that we love and worship Him perfectly, that we do not have idols, that, that there would be nothing we put before Him in our lives. He has called us to love our neighbor perfectly. He has given us instruction, and we have decided to follow our own paths and our own guidance. This isn't some sickness that we caught at work or school. It wasn't developed in a lab and then spread by accident. There's no sin vaccine. The disease of sin infects us real early. The Bible tells us that we were sinful from the time of conception, hanging out as little embryos in our mother's womb, and though we had never taken a breath, didn't have a brain with which to form a thought. We were still little sinners. Because the corruption of sin is passed down to all people through Adam. Because of Adam's fall in the garden, because he ate the fruit through his seed, through him sin passed on to us. If, if you have a dad, if you have DNA, then you are a sinner. It's in the genes. It's a part of being human. We aren't sinners because of how we act. We act the way we do because we're sinners. This is the doctrine, the belief called original sin, and it's, it's pretty heavy. Like, like, this isn't fun, right? This isn't cheery. It's not something we're excited about. Who wants to be the walking dead? That sounds terrible. But we don't really have a lot of choice in the matter, and so much as we may want to pretend that, that everything is okay and that we don't have to deal with the consequences of our sin, as much as we may want to ignore our sinfulness, we can't escape the reality of our fallen condition. It's not a problem that we can ignore. The consequences for our sins are not always immediate, but we can't avoid them. They are our reality. And God can't be in relationship with sin. So there is this, this barrier, there is this divide between God and man, the most precious to God of all of his creation, created in his image, his people, his love, and they have fallen. And so he can't have relationship with them, the relationship that he designed them to have with him. So what does he do? Does he start over? Does he wipe the slate clean and create less damaged goods? No. Though that would have cost him less, that is not what he did. Instead of starting over, he sent us Jesus. He sent his son to earth and and Jesus left the utopia of heaven and came to this broken world, living, living 
and suffering alongside the fallen. For we have stumbled in our brokenness. Jesus never lost his balance. Jesus never once sinned. He didn't have an earthly father, so he was not conceived with sin like the rest of us. Sin never touched him. Though he was tempted, he never wavered. Jesus was perfect, and we hated him for it. And one day, Jesus was betrayed. He was convicted in a sham of a trial by a rigged jury, and he was sentenced to death, death on a cross. And so up the hill to Calvary walked our Lord with the weight of the heavy wooden timbers across his shoulders. But it was not just the cross that he carried up that hill, but the burden of the sin of the entire world was upon him. And as the nails went through his hands and his feet, and as he was lifted up before man being not mocked for his nakedness and his vulnerability, there on the cross, Jesus became sin for us. He became it. Our sin was given to Jesus. It was imputed to him. He became it. And there on the cross, the wrath of God was poured out on Jesus because of our sin, because of the sin that he became. Before he took his last breath, Jesus said these three words, it is finished. It is done. The penalty for sin has been paid. There is no more sin to pay for. Christ took all sin for all time, and he paid the price for all of them. It is finished. That sin that you've been struggling to confess, the one that you don't want anyone to know about, yeah, God knew about it. He gave it to Christ. Jesus became it and then died for it. It is finished. That sin that everyone knows about, the one that gives you shame whenever it's brought up, yeah, God gave that sin to Jesus too, and Jesus became it, and he died for it, and it is finished. The heavenly penalty for sin is finished, church. Christ died for your sins, not that you would continue to torture yourself over them, but that you might be forgiven and come into relationship with God. For you see, Jesus did not stay dead. He rose from the grave, defeating sin and death. And when we believe in him and we have faith in him, when we are baptized into him, the dirty rags of our sin are taken from us and we are clothed in the righteousness of Christ. This is what Paul is writing to the church in Rome about in our text this morning. He writes that we are, when we are baptized into Christ, when we are baptized into the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, that we are baptized into his death. We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. When we are baptized, we are joined with Jesus. We are joined with him in his death, the death to sin, the death that he died to pay the price for our failings, our sinfulness, our misdeeds, our screw-ups. Through baptism, we join Jesus in his death. That's what Paul is saying here. And when we are joined with him in that death, we are also joined with him in being raised from the dead. When we are baptized, we go down with Jesus, and then we come up with Jesus, death and resurrection. For what purpose? Well, through baptism, we are brought into the covenant promises that God made his people. In the Old Testament, circumcision was the mark of an Israelite. Through, the, through that act, you were marked as one of the people of promise. It wasn't something that you did. It was something that was done to you. It was God's provision. It was God's provision for his people. In Colossians chapter 2, verses 11 to 12, we read, In him you were also circumcised with a circumcision not performed by human hands. Your whole self, your whole self ruled by the flesh was put off when you were circumcised by Christ. 
having been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him. Through your faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. In this passage, Paul is pointing out that baptism is the new circumcision. It is the mark of a Christian. Through this sacrament, we are marked as one of the people of promise. It's not something that we do. Again, it is God at work in baptism. But through baptism, we are brought into the family of God. Last week, we talked about how discipleship was inviting people into our lives. Baptism is bringing them into the life, into the family of God. And so it is, necessi- is a necessary part of discipleship. First, Paul writes in our text this morning, through baptism, we are given new life. In the walking dead, people died and came back as monsters. For the baptized, we were once the walking dead. And through baptism have died with Christ and been brought back into Christ and into new life, into a better life. A life on the other side of death. A life in which our sin has been forgiven. A life in which we have been justified. A life in which we are saved. A life in which we are no longer the walking dead. For again, as Mike read for us earlier, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 through 5 reads, But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. Through baptism, we have been made alive, dead in sin, made alive, saved by grace. People struggle with the idea that baptism saves. And I can understand that struggle when we look at baptism as something that we do. If we look at baptism as some, uh, if we look at the baptism that, that baptisms that John the Baptist was doing out in the wilderness, the baptism of repentance, yeah, that's people going to be forgiven. That, that's something that they are doing that is showing their belief, expressing their sorrow over their sin and their need for forgiveness. But it was John himself that told the crowds, and by extension us, as it is recorded in Scripture, that one would come after him who would baptize them with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Baptism into Christ is a whole different animal than baptism as we see John giving out in the beginning of the Gospels. The baptism we have today, the one that was instituted by Christ, the sacrament is something that God does. It's not something that we do. It's not something, it's not us doing the work in baptism. It is God working through the water and the word. We, we are taken out of it. And so because it's not us doing the work, we also don't need to be baptized multiple times. If it's us doing the work, then yeah, just like daily repentance, we would need to come into the baptismal waters again and again, but that's not what baptism is for. That is not what Jesus instituted. The Bible even tells us that we are called to one faith and one baptism. The gifts we receive in baptism are tied to Christ's work on the cross, and so once we are baptized, baptized, Christ's words ring true, it is finished. Christ didn't need to die twice, so we don't need to join him in death twice, or multiple times, for that matter. And since it is God doing the work, it doesn't matter where you got baptized. If you were washed with the water and word in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, then it doesn't matter if that happened in a Catholic church, in a Lutheran church, in a Presbyterian church, in a Baptist church, or a house church, in a river with a ton of water, or just with a sprinkle on your head. If you were baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, then God has done the work. And through the work of baptism, God saves us. Peter himself, the rock upon which God built his church, writes in 1 Peter chapter 3, 20 and 22, God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, 
That is, eight persons were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. Not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. Baptism now saves you. And Paul in our text this morning says that baptism gives us a a new life. It brings us back from the dead. It, It saves us. So yes, we believe that baptism saves. And further, we believe that all need to be saved. That includes children. For as we have talked about, we were conceived sinful. We got that gift from Adam. We all, even the youngest, most innocent of us, are still sinners in need of grace. And I get the struggle to understand how a child can have faith. It doesn't make sense to us, right? It's, it's hard to process. My son, my son Amos, who was baptized a year ago now, he's not that old. When we baptized him, he didn't have the, the cognitive ability to even laugh. How, how could he possibly process the deep thoughts associated with faith? And yet, while we may struggle with that, the Bible, the Word of God, does not. How often in Scripture are we told to have faith like a child? The disciples try to keep the bothersome ones away from Jesus, but he tells them to stop, to let the little ones come to him, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. The children, the men, the young males of of Israel were circumcised as soon as they could be. It was God's provision for them. Baptism as the new circumcision is God's provision for us. Would we withhold that? Would we withhold that from the children? Sometimes we adults think that we have it all put together, all figured out, but I think that we get it wrong with faith a lot. Seems like kids do a lot better with faith than we do. A while ago, I was putting my kids to bed, and I took Amos and held him above my head. Held him above, yeah, my chest and waist, and pushed him up against the ceiling in his bedroom. And the kid was loving it, laughing and giggling about Dad having him up there. One of my older boys decided that looked fun, and he wanted to go at it. I, I didn't have that one past my shoulders before he started freaking out. It was too high, it was, it was too much. He didn't trust that I could hold him. And then it seemed for my kids that it became less about me being able to hold them, less about faith in dad and more about their ability to be brave. There was this subconscious understanding that there was the possibility that dad could drop them or would drop them. Could they be brave enough to deal with my inabilities, my lack of strength? Some of my boys bit back their fear long enough for me to press them against the ceiling, though their concern was evident in the rigidness of their body and the wideness of their eyes. Some of them wouldn't let me bring them higher than my chest. But for Amos, he just basked in the joy of his daddy enjoying him, lifting him to heights that he could never achieve on his own. Saying that children can't have faith is like saying there isn't a God. The evidence is all around us if we only open our eyes to see it. Children need God's grace just as badly as we do. And Christ's death on the cross is just as important for them as it is for us. All are sinful. All have fallen short of the glory of God. 
All need forgiveness. All need to join Jesus in his death that they might join Jesus in his resurrection and live a new life in salvation. Do not keep the little ones from baptism, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Baptism is God working through the water and the word and washing away our sin on account of the death of Jesus Christ. A few years ago, I received a swag bag from a convention that I attended, and in that bag was a little black water bottle. On the side of the bottle was a message that read, Remember your baptism. Why would anyone put that on a water bottle? Why is that a phrase? Because, of each, of us, because each of us are sinners. Though we may be Christian, though, though we are... Though we may be Christian, though we are to be struggling forward in our walks of faith and following the commandments and instructions, the good and holy law that God has given to us, that we might live more edified and fulfilled lives, we aren't always going to be doing super great at that. And the reminder to us to remember our baptism is a reminder that through baptism we have with Jesus died to sin and with Jesus been resurrected by the glory of God and that we have been given a new life. Remembering our baptism is remembering that Jesus died for us and that we are saved through the faith that has been given to us, that God has forgiven us. And man, we need that encouragement regularly. Remembering our baptism is not finding security in the thought that because we were baptized, we are eternally secure. That piece, that piece of paper, that little certificate is not what we hand to Peter as our ticket through the pearly gates. Through baptism, we are given faith. Faith is what's saved, and faith is a gift, and gifts can be returned. We don't have children baptized, nor are we baptized ourselves, that we might then live a life of reckless abandon because we're good, right? We've got the certificate. That's not what we mean when we say, remember your baptism. No, instead, as we ponder baptism, as we celebrate this means of grace, this sacrament instituted by Jesus, may it remind us, of all that Christ has done for us, the faith that he has given us, the salvation that he has welcomed us to. No longer are we the walking dead, for by faith we have been saved. We have died to sin in Christ through baptism. Christ is the one who paid the price on the back end. He's the one who paid the piper. Though there will be and often are consequences here in this life for the sin that we do, the eternal significance of our sin, the spiritual consequences have been dealt with by our Lord and Savior on the cross, and we join him in the new life through baptism. Church, as we go out into the world sent by God to make disciples, as we love our neighbors and tell them of Christ and his love for them, may we not shy away from the importance that the scriptures give to baptism, the promise that it is for us, how it brings us into the family of God, how it gives us new life, how it saves us. So let us remember our baptism. Let us remember all of the gifts that God has given us through the work of Christ and let us have a burden for our neighbor who is yet to receive these gifts for themselves. And let us go to them and pray for them that they would be baptized and brought into the family of God for this is part of discipling. And if you aren't baptized, well, I would love to have a conversation with you about that sometime. Because God has some fantastic things that he would love to give to you. What a fantastic, loving, gracious, and merciful God we serve. Amen.